I'm Santi Caro, and I'm a self-aholic. And um, somewhat of a recovering workaholic. Uh, Craig told you a little bit about a, a dialogue that I've been involved in, at least this is how I see it, between practice of Buddhism and Buddhist understanding and practice of the 12 steps. My, my first knowledge of the 12 steps was a friend, Dan, who died a year and a half ago, um, was an alcoholic and a frequent visitor to Suan Mok in southern Thailand. And he was a real friendly guy, and over time he would explain various aspects of AA and the 12 steps. Um, actually, I wanted to jump back earlier um, from a piece of this story related to the talk, so excuse me. Um, actually wanted to go back to my Peace Corps experience um, where binge drinking in Bangkok was uh, part of the experience, but that's not why I'm bringing up Peace Corps. Uh, as a young idealistic um, American with a fairly good Midwestern Protestant upbringing. I joined the Peace Corps and worked in a rural junior high school, actually two of them. I had to leave the first one for uh, reasons. And over the, over the period of my Peace Corps experience, I became a little bit jaded or embittered by what I thought of as selfishness. Here I am, the idealistic American. I didn't quite buy the sacrificing, you know, for poor people bit, but there's a little of, of that kind of uh, arrogance, if you like. But I was very disappointed to find that a number of my Thai colleagues were not school teachers to teach. They were just in it to make a living. And showing up in the classroom was somewhat optional, and so on. So I developed a critique of them as being selfish, and then the kind of school I was working in as both an English teacher and an agriculture teacher was part of a World Bank project and there was a highly paid consultant from the University of Alberta who was so into his theories he didn't really care what actually happened on the ground. So then I extended my critique to him. And then I had some friends who went to work for the UN, and my critique expanded further. And then there were the Chinese middlemen making money off of the small farmers and 
more room for my critique. So as time went on, I was getting pretty good at pointing the finger of selfishness. But then something happened towards the end of my Peace Corps service. I, I was at a conference in Bangkok of various volunteer agencies, both foreign, like the British, um, what were they called? I forget. And the Canadians and Australians and Germans. And there were Thai volunteer programs based in two of the leading universities. And so I was trotted out as a successful volunteer. So the main reason I was there is I had stuck around long enough. My tie was good enough to participate in a, a conference with, where everyone was speaking in Thai. And that usually takes a while, to, and I had been there three and a half years. But when the limelight got shined on me and I was written up in a couple of the newspapers in Bangkok, it started to creep into my awareness, and this had been growing, but that I had gone into this two areas, and especially the second part of the place where I worked, with an agenda. It was shaped by my middle class and capitalist upbringing. It was shaped by official Peace Corps policy. I joined when Jimmy Carter was president and with much regret served while Ronald Reagan was president in Peace Corps shifted then to a very pro-business, entrepreneurial um, agenda. And some of that made perfect sense because I grew up in America. And we sort of heroize um, entrepreneurs and so on. So anyway, I finally started to notice that in being successful, part of, not all, but part of what that meant was I was good at getting my agenda implemented. And part of that was this big, there's a development competition in Thailand that went on at the time. And I helped one of our local villages win. And one of my best friends was the provincial representative of development volunteers from around the country. And out of the 72 of them, he was chosen to speak when the prime minister gave them medals. And so he was successful, too. Um, and then he came back to the village and was ostracized. And they, they criticized him. So you just did this to promote yourself, which I don't think was true. But there was a real big pushback against him. And so at the same time, I was starting to question what was my motivation. And I had to admit that there was a lot of self-centeredness. I had my ideas about what development meant. And that goes back to Harry Truman and all kinds of American imperialism that I since questioned. But my point is, whatever I believed, that's what I was pushing. And I was not that good 
I wasn't horrible, but I could have been a lot more sensitive. I could have spent a lot more time listening to what people wanted, which is more my development model many years later. So it hit me that, you know, after pointing the finger at all these other selfish people, uh, there was plenty of selfishness in me. And this, this was, I'd say, a big thing in my life um, and my involvement in Buddhism because over the same period of time, I'd been getting involved in Buddhism, starting to meditate off and on, and I was fascinated by the teaching of not-self. And I didn't get it, and I kind of get it now, but I'm not promising I get it. Um, but I teach it all the time, so I <laughs> But since I can still be selfish, I don't thoroughly get it. Um, but I, I think I've been getting it more and more deeply as the years go by. But so this became a very active quandary in my mind that, okay, the Buddha, who I was getting very interested in, and the teachings attributed to the Buddha, talk about not-self, and yet I was really troubled by selfishness in the World Bank, in the UN, in the Thai government, in myself, and, you know, pretty much anywhere you look, you can find some selfishness operating. And so that was a conundrum. If the Buddha is right and everything is not self, then what are we being selfish about? And that's, especially in my early years of Buddhist study, that was um, uh, an important line of inquiry. And the way it's the background for today's topic, addiction to self. And this story was my kind of the first good funk or slap in the face that motivated me to treat Buddhism more as practice than nifty ideas because I used to sit around with other Peace Corps volunteers drinking Singha beer at 2 in the morning talking about Buddhism. And I'd read more books, so I was the experts <laughs> as we pounded beers. So, so then again I met this guy Dan who started to introduce me to the 12 steps but I wasn't that interested at the time but then when I moved back to Chicago as Craig mentioned there was some local 12 steppers who were had had enough of the God talk, and that's pretty much how they put it, especially one of them. Um, and they're still pretty good friends, although one moved back to Philadelphia. And then another friend who I knew through other channels was little by little informing me about AA. And so through 
them. It was uh, that's that's when I really got into this dialogue between Buddhism and the Twelve Steps. Their questions were around, well, what's a non-theistic or Buddhist take on higher power? But as we explored this, and then later um, these friends helped organize some meetings and invited more 12-steppers, and there was a series of dialogues that ended up on the internet, and that's how I got connected with the Buddhist Recovery Network. I want to, the reason I um, rehearse or recite this little bit of personal history is to kind of give context to my involvement in the 12 steps. Although this morning I had a bit of a crisis um, because, as some of you know, I I um, contracted a form of cancer, a kind of lymphoma. So for the past year or so, the word recovery has meant something much different um, for me. And so I, I really haven't been as involved in this dialogue uh, during the past year. On the other hand, um, going through cancer, chemo, and recovery from chemo, which is ongoing. I, the idea of alcoholism, for example, or addiction as an illness is something I, I can relate to more than I did before. So that's a little bit of my background and how I started to learn about the 12 steps. And since um, found, you know, friends who are AA, NA, OA, Al-Anon, and then in the Buddhist recovery network, other people, not that I'm really tight in that network, but I met people who are dealing with recovery or even exploring non-12-step Buddhist grounded programs of recovery. And I've heard some of them teach here, so you you can pursue that with them. For today's talk, I'd like to go back when when I was asked to give the talk a few years ago at the first Buddhist Recovery Network conference, and I forget how the topic of addiction to self came up, but not being well-educated in, in the area of addictions, I asked the organizers, a guy named Paul, Kevin Griffiths, who comes here, Alan Marlott, who teaches, used to be at University of Wisconsin, is now at University of Washington. Do they have a working definition of addiction? They didn't. <laughs> but they shared um, certain ideas, and I'd, I'd like to use those as an entry into talking about or exploring addiction to self. 
I look back at some emails that we exchanged and here are some of the pieces that they mentioned in a number of email exchanges. First, addiction as an especially powerful craving. And these are all Buddhist-oriented people, and in Buddhism, cravings a big deal, according to the, in the classic exposition of the Four Noble Truths, craving is the origin of suffering. And Kevin especially was careful to say, and Alan also reinforced this, that addiction is on a spectrum of craving. It's not off the spectrum. And for, and this makes sense to me, but an addiction is an especially powerful and somewhat out of control craving. But it's on the same spectrum of all the cravings that human beings deal with. So that's, that's one linkage between Buddhist exploration and inquiry into the nature of addiction. Another term that Kevin used, and I guess he's used this in workshops at Buddhist chaplaincy programs, is addiction is mindless, i.e. not mindful. So it's of course, that fits with Buddhist understanding if when we're operating under the power of craving, whatever, we're, whatever the object of the craving may be, mindfulness is, is pretty frayed. Um, those of us who are committed to a mindfulness practice may try to tell ourselves we're being mindful of our craving, but often it's a stretch. We're doing that more for self-esteem reasons than for um, reality reasons. The more we become mindful, genuinely mindful of a craving, the less power it has. But with addictions, it seems, and even if we're not an official addict, I can recognize in myself certain things that are real strong, even if I can be kind of mindful of it, it's, it's still somewhat out of control. A third aspect that these um, friends talked about was it's harmful, that an addiction leads to behaviors that do harm to oneself or others. Fourth, they noted a etymological link between the word addiction, and if you want the details, I've got it in the notes, but I can't remember the whole thing, but between addiction and dictator that etymologically the words are related, the dict part comes from some Latin word, that the addiction is like a dictator. Five, 
that addictions are habitual. You know, they're not one-off drunken escapades or an abuse of a drug or a gambling binge or overeating or whatever, but that these are habitual. And I take that to mean both behaviorally habitual, but emotionally, eternal, internally, there's, there's habits going on. And the last one that I pulled out of these emails, there's dependence. There's emotional, psychological, and physical dependence on the alcohol or overwork or gambling and so on. Now again, I'm by no means all that knowledgeable about addictions such as to alcohol or drugs. But the bit about selfishness at the beginning I brought up because ever since I got seriously interested in Buddhist teaching and practice, the whole question of self and selfishness has, has guided me. Now, I, I'm not claiming to be any expert in that as well, but it's something I, I've studied and continue to study. So I'd, I'd like to go back to these aspects of addiction and note a connection with self. Now, here perhaps I should uh, pause for a minute to to uh, to be a little careful about the word self. First of all, well, actually right now I'm not going to try to define it because usually the way it plays out in us, it's a pretty vague, blurry um, sense or idea or belief. So actually trying to define it probably is not needed right now. Philosophically it might be nifty to try to define it. But in talking about addiction to self, um, for now let's just take it as whatever you think you are at any point in time. Now in my view, that probably changes a lot. But much of the time, there's somebody or something we think we are that is separate from others and the rest of the world. Second, it's real important to point out, in no way am I saying self is a bad thing. But I will say it's heavily implicated in suffering. Doesn't make it bad. If you um, go into the evolution of self, um, we wouldn't be here without it as a species, both the good and the bad. But, but that's not the subject today. So for example, is self a powerful manifestation of craving. Do we crave self? 
I'm going to skip that one and come back to it because I don't think so. But is self or itself something about which we are not particularly mindful? I would say yes. Unless we have a pretty good mindfulness practice, it's assumed. There's, there's a, a German philosopher of consciousness who works with neuroscientists who's got a book called The Ego, Ego Tunnel. And his thesis is that the way our nervous systems have evolved, and he's not a Buddhist, he's a scientific materialist, but his thesis is our species have evolved an illusion that we exist. And there is an objective reality that we are operating in. Um, does that sound weird, or is that something you can kind of work with. Does it seem like there's a real world around us? Okay. According to this guy and a number of neuroscientists and probably a lot of Buddhist teachers, I mean, it's tricky, but he says that world we think objectively exists doesn't exist the way we think it exists. Now, as a Buddhist, I would say the delusion is not that there's a world, but that it's real in the way we experience it. <coughs> that can be a bit of a, a mind bender. But not only is there a world that is a creation of the neural system, <coughs> which is not the Buddhist view, it's the neuroscience, at least. Some neuroscientists have that view. But the sense of being an entity, an agent, an individual, is also a creation of the nervous system that served an evolutionary purpose. But yet, it's not real. Now, I'm trying to be careful about this not real part because I don't think the Buddha denies self, but he looks through what we might call the appearance of self, which, which is a term in the old teachings. And interestingly, Thai monks in Thailand a monk refers to himself to non-monks as atapap, which means pop in Thai now means image. Ata is the word translated as self. So when you're speaking, you refer to yourself as picture of self or appearance of self or somebody that looks like a self. Anyway, the, again, drawing back on the work of this guy whose name is Thomas Nutzinger, the illusion, and you don't have to agree or believe it's 
an illusion. I'm just borrowing this perspective. Thank you. But I, a point I think is easy or important to to look into is because the sense of being an agent, somebody in charge, somebody who can do stuff and get the results we want, get rid of stuff we don't want, that it's very ubiquitous. It's, we grow up with it. And it's just assumed. And so it's like the air in the room. It's, it's never noticed. Everybody talks, normal language talks about I and you, he and she. We talk, especially in America, we, we talk about individuality. It's assumed. Only certain philosophers or crazies and Buddhists and some others <laughs> question it. But for the vast majority of humans and I would say most Buddhists, most of the time, just act as if they're self. We don't question it. We just keep motoring on. And that's kind of mindless, or if you prefer a slightly less offensive term, it's not very mindful. It's hard to be mindful of this dynamic in these mechanisms because it's so familiar. It's us. You know, it feels like it's us. And so if there is this, if you think of it as evolutionary or whatever, <clears throat> if there's this, these mechanisms of self, or the way I see it, many, many selves getting born, dying, getting born, dying over and over again from day to day. <clears throat> it's real hard to be mindful of that. Is addiction to self harmful? Going back to my Peace Corps story, I would answer for sure. When we, the more we hang on to or cling to self, the more selfish we are. And my personal experience was about funds that are meant to be channeled to a certain group of people who are targeted as in need of help. And a lot of the funds never get there. They get siphoned off here and, here and there or in development work, often the poorest of the poor don't get a penny. It's the richer poor who get it because they're better placed to grab it. And then a lot of aid workers, they're normal human beings who get caught up in their own careerism. I wasn't, I can say I wasn't in it for the money but my ego was in it, and recognition and success and proving my ideas right. 
And that was not only harmful to others, I think, but it was harmful to me. There was anger when I couldn't get things done my way. And by the way, that still happens. I'm not in development work anymore. But um, sometimes when I'm putting in a, a nail and something goes wrong, <clears throat> that little spike of, of anger. Now, by the way, I'm bringing these up, illustrating a little bit as much to give you some things to explore and reflect on, on your own. So I'm not really here to convince, but offer stuff for exploration. Is self-dictatorial? Um, I think so. When, especially if we call it ego, when this certain kind of what I see as a kind of particularly tight knot of energy, mental, emotional energy gets revved up, it dictates. And it can trample. If, if we really want something and we're driven or competitive, that's one part of our culture I picked up really good was the competitiveness, sports, academics, helping the poor, whatever, um, giving Dhamma talks even. Um, it can be dictatorial and can brush aside considerations like, is this of any use to other people? Is this respectful? Is it kind? and so on. Or even, is this healthy for my own body or my own emotional life? Is self habitual? I would say sure. It's the faces of all the different selves because my understanding is each self is just this little temporary concoction and then another one and another one and some of them have sort of patterns so certain kinds of selves repeat. I've been teaching since I was a kid so I've got some teacher self. Some of it's inherited or learned from my dad we just love to explain stuff. If you let us, we'll sit and explain just about anything. And if we don't know what we're doing, we'll make it up. <laughs> Which has been a real danger in teaching Dhamma. You know, there's this capacity to just make it up. <laughs> and to check in, wait a minute. Um, so there's a variety of teacher egos or selves. There's meditator selves. There's male type stuff. Um, I've got a whole packet of lazy egos, shirker egos, um, things like that, angry egos. And it wasn't too bad, but when I got cancer, you know, then you can build your cancer identity. And, you know, people. <laughs> 
people who don't have cancer will never understand. And of course, I've heard that from alcoholics, you know, if you're not in the club, then you'll never get it. And cancer people can think that way, too. So there are all kinds of egos. I'm not saying these are bad or good, but um, definitely there are habitual patterns involved. And dependence. I'm a little attracted to Metzinger's evolutionary perspective just because that's, I was raised with that belief, scientific background, and I believe in evolution. Um, and so, okay, that kind of makes sense that <clears throat> we learn to depend on self. Some of my own reflections on this are along the lines of, um, and shortly I'm going to tie this back to craving, which I skipped earlier. If if we have something to do, much of the time we will depend on ego as the kind of mechanism for accomplishing stuff. Now when we meditate, guess what happens? Often, and you know, I'm sure you hear about this over and over again here. Maybe the language is a little different than mine, but I was talking, Mark and I and Wynn were talking about this last night. So often, meditation is hijacked by ego striving, trying to get a certain experience, trying to become a certain way, whatever our ideal our spiritual ideal or our ideal of psychological well-being. And again, I'm not saying this is bad, but meditation is continually being taken over by ego because we've depended on this all our lives as the means to accomplish anything. A metaphor would be if there's a car to drive, it needs a driver, right? It seems to be a common sense assumption that an activity requires an actor. This is one reason for the karma teachings in Buddhism, so we start to look into action and then start to look into actors and maybe even question what is the actor. And eventually, Buddhist teachings don't talk about the actor. They talk about processes within us that drive action. But in our kind of common sense beliefs or the delusions that Metzinger talked about, we rely a lot on self or if there's anything we want to protect, guess what that brings up? You know, there's me and I'm protecting something dear to me and we'll even fight for it. So those are a couple examples 
I think, of how we've come to depend on self. So most of these characteristics of addiction, as according to friends in the Buddhist recovery network, um, pretty much applied to self. Now I'd like to come back to craving. When I think about this, and based on, you know, to the extent I've been able to watch the mechanisms of self and the patterns, I don't quite think it makes sense to say we crave self. However, self and craving are intimately uh, connected. For example, <clears throat> in my, my teacher's approach to the teaching of depending core rising, which we're not going to go into a lot of detail of, he would, his understanding of clinging, or in the Buddha's teaching, clinging, or sometimes called attachment or grasping, arises dependent on craving. And the way my teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa, would explain that is when there's craving, there arises a sense of a craver. So just like a car needs a driver, um, or an action, we assume, needs an actor. One of his examples of that was when he first saw a watch, you know, the old-fashioned pocket watches, and he saw the back, and it was moving. He assumed he was a little kid, six, eight. He assumed it was alive. And the first Model Ts, they weren't, they were considered to be alive. People would see them, and something that moved like that, they weren't used to machines that did that, so for a short period, people wondered if cars were alive. And by the way, automobile is part of the illusion of self. Something that moves by itself is um, just a little etymological anomaly there. So anyway, when there's craving, there's usually there will arise a sense of crave-her. And the, the way I've come to see this, craving wants something, either positively to get or to keep, or negatively to get rid of or protect against. When craving has an object, it fixes on that, on the object, and then clinging grabs on to a sense of subject. And then this gestates and grows into a sense of self. And once there's that sense of self, it's very easy to be selfish about it. Which is how I understand birth and rebirth in Buddhist teachings. 
And so that's part of how craving is connected with suffering and egoistic birth is in the middle of that process. So it, I wouldn't say that we crave self the way we crave, in some people's cases, alcohol or whatever it is about gambling or the way some of us can be driven to work ourselves practically to death and so on. But the craving leads to, to self. <clears throat> and then self manifests around the trappings around craving. If there's things you crave, that starts to shape your identity. Nowadays in modern consumer society where people kind of brand themselves by the, you know, how many of you shop at REI? Is that part of your identity? How many of you are regulars at the Seward Co-op? I'm a member of the Lacrosse Co-op. <laughs> I bet that has some influence, and for some of us, strong, like vegetarian or only organic. <clears throat> Craving leads to a focus in things that then are the material that we form our identities out of. And those identities are part of self. That's where the, the more subtle sense that there's somebody in here experiencing this or somebody doing the activity, then it gets fleshed out with identities that come out of um, what we like, what we don't like, what we want, what we don't want the stuff we own, and so on. <clears throat> this theme, um, although in a way I've just made an argument uh, for that addiction for self, to self makes sense. Um, sorry, that's a habit I have. But I, I do prefer to keep this more as a question because in the end it's not necessary to take a position on this. But I, I think there are some reasons why those of us involved in various forms of recovery and especially if we're also exploring Buddhism or things like Buddhism, that not only doing something like the steps, but also inquiring into the way we're stuck on self, that these can be mutually supportive, which is pretty much what kept my interest up in the 12 steps. 
can't remember when, but some 12-step friends drew my attention to how, how often humility is spoken of in the big book. And somebody pointed out how the, what was it, the Oxford group or wherever where Bill and Dr. Bob or kind of got some of their early ideas from. The, in the Christianity of that group, humility has a close resemblance to what in Buddhism we'd call letting go. I think if you read, reread, when I've gone back and looked at passages in the big book, being humble is about letting go of ego. So I think, and the way my 12-step friends have phrased it, it's all through the big book that once you're staying dry or clean or not gambling or whatever, then you're, you're dealing with all this ego stuff. And humility was a name given to relaxing, releasing, and letting go of that. Another reason why I find it probably helpful to inquire into addiction to self is if and we'll never know for sure, but if we come at addiction with this perspective, I'm not saying it should be the main or primary, but again, if, if we're involved in some form of recovery and Buddhist practice, if we're interested in Buddhist teachings, for somebody like me, you know, at first it's like, well, I'm not an alcoholic and could be my Puritan aspects of my upbringing or whatever. Or there was a certain, um, what's the word for it? That's a kind of arrogance, you know, of the sort of true believer young monk that, you know, what's your problem? Why don't you just get your shit together? Why don't you just um, practice better? Which, of course, is ugly, unsympathetic. There's no loving kindness. Plus, it's stupid. Um, but I, I, by the way, never said anything so gross. But thoughts along those lines have passed through. So for me to to find commonality, which is kind of usually at the core of metta practice. Um, loving kindness, to see what we have in common as a starting point. So the way Kevin and others spoke of addiction on the spectrum of craving, in a similar way, to see that 
far as I can tell, all of us suffer from addiction to self. And by the way, my teacher called it the spiritual disease. That if we all suffer from this, then we can find commonality with people who are, you know, homeless drunks, their lives a mess, and are, for some of us, at least mine, middle class upbringing really doesn't want to identify with the humanity of people in that kind of situation, even if I'm politically correct about it. So I believe that seeing our addiction, dependence, habituality, mindlessness about self can help us to be compassionate towards people with um, the more traditional addiction. Second, one thing I've respected about the people in 12-step programs, the ones I've gotten to know, most of whom have been sober a long period, so I've had friends who've lapsed with wine or heroin or whatever. But there's a kind of clarity and commitment that I, I wonder if Buddhists have anything quite so strong. I don't know. It's just a question that's occurred to me because you know, when I, I meet people who go to meetings every day or even twice a day, you know, and I, I have friends who don't go so regularly, but something about bottoming out and being able to really embrace the, the steps is you don't see it so much on meditation retreats and the struggling to maintain a daily practice. Um, now, you know, I don't want anybody to take on some negative identity. Oh, no, I'm an addict. But might there be some power that would deepen our commitment to practice if we saw lurking in us the disease of addiction to self, to selfishness, and so on. I kind of feel modern American Buddhism is kind of sugar-coated because we have our... There's a whole thing about self-esteem in our stressed-out capitalist um, high-paced culture and so it's, this is delicate, but it's in places like Thailand, you can use blunt language, and it's, it's not PC in American Buddhism. Um, so something like this is voluntary, but by thinking of craving and clinging and self 
and selfishness instead of just, oh, I'm being mindful of it as we quaff some expensive coffee from who knows where which I still do, by the way um, would there be more commitment and strength if we reflected on this as addiction either literally or metaphorically as a Buddhist practitioner student and teacher I think also this inquiry is helpful for those dealing with um, the more usual addiction or the you know the more I don't know the word from alcoholism and others would this kind of inquiry help go deeper into the roots of addiction I believe the steps um, and I know that mainly regarding alcohol are a very skillful means to get people sober and keep them sober and I respect that a lot even though I can only kind of guess at what a struggle that is. But according to the big book and everybody I've heard talk about the steps, that's the beginning. It's not, or it's, it's a big conversion experience, but it's by no means the end. And so I wonder if Buddhist inquiries into self and how it's a constructed phenomenon. Buddhists don't talk about it quite the way neuroscientists or Metzinger does. But we have other ways to explore how self and therefore selfishness is constructed out of memory, imagination, our biology, concepts, language, and a lot of fuzziness. The whole thing on self depends on being blurred and blurring. So I'm almost done and then we'll and lastly I'm hopeful this kind of inquiry and dialogue can help us explore and deepen the many ways of letting go of addiction in general and specifically addiction to self.
um, our strength and our weakness that we're different than that. And so, which brings me to the question of why do you think that humans have such difficulty in accepting monotheism and polytheism? Why would it have to be one or the other? And so, um, this evokes these types of questions where maybe these problems that arise from looking at the self, focusing on the self, maybe the solution might be in becoming more collective in what we do and how we think and how we meet each other and finding ways like I belong to the self-organization collective where we use yoga and we use Kriya yoga as something that we do collectively. And so rather than um, taking a finger at the selfish tendency, I was sort of interested in the solution of becoming more like-minded mm-hmm. with other people. And, um, sure. Um, and actually, this, the last part of your question ties into um, my ending, which I skipped, um, or partly. I believe um, that part of our suffering in this culture and society is because in addition to being stuck in self, which people in Asia are too, but ourselves are more probably the most isolated of any human society or culture. And so I feel our culture has gone too far on the individualism collective spectrum. Now, as many people will point out, if we get lost too much in the collective, a lot of dangers can happen in there. But I would say for our culture, I think part of our healing is, like in Buddhist terms, sangha, community, (coughs) that not approaching Buddhism as just an individual thing or meditation as an individual thing. So on that piece, I agree with you. But given that the cultural forces and tendencies seem to me very strong to a certain kind of individuality, yet I would also say there's a whole lot of herd behavior at the same time, so there's there's some complicated contradictions there. But I think part of our healing is like 12 steppers and meetings, Buddhists who not only approach this as a personal practice, but a a group practice, and the give and take, the sharing and letting go that that involves. So I think that's one aspect of practice that 12-step programs demonstrate, and I think Buddhists have a lot of learning to do. This is a place where community is doing pretty well. Um, In the past, Buddhist meditation was you go off on retreat, and then you go home, 
and the building of meaningful relationships was not a big part of it. meditate with others which can be very supportive. I think it's also important to note, accept though that there are, there are people who feel threatened to meditate in a group and need more privacy. So I think there's a range. I, I, in general I'd agree with you that it's a great support. But for some, due to past history, personality, whatever, it's not, they don't experience it as so supportive. So to offer that, I think, is important. But we should accept that for some folks, they may not show up very much. And to respect that as well. Right now, my favorite word would be Dhamma for higher power. But there are plenty of other words, you know, and I've met the people who said it can be a doorknob. And I've, I've met people who started with a doorknob. I, I don't get that, but I believe it. Um, and from my perspective, it's, it's anything that's not you you know, is the starting point of getting 
out from the control of this destructive um, addiction and the egoism of it and so anything will work but if one's attracted to Buddhist teachings it's all about non-theistic higher power if um, the way Ajahn Buddhadasa talked about Dhamma is the word means many things it can mean nature so nature is a higher power nature being the universe that's bigger and more powerful than us Dhamma is also the law of nature there's some basic ways that the universe operates like it's changing all the time it's impermanent that's more powerful than us um, and uh, perhaps the most ancient meaning of the word Dhamma is duty and there are various ways to explore that the way I understand it's similar to in the the next right thing that the reality we're in calls us to respond and stepping into that response is the duty so it's not the duty that's assigned to us by an authority figure or religious dictates it's coming out of our own mindfulness intelligence and wisdom so so there are reflections like this um, it could be the triple gem if that's your orientation so does that help at all I think um, I guess one thing I envy about somebody who is just a head-on Christian is that they have this one tiny thing right and uh, as I'm listening to you it's sort of mirroring back some of my experience over the last year in which is that it, it, it's not a, a one thing I mean that you say the data well so it's God the, that tidy thing is only going to get you so far <laughs> because anybody who really explores God well it explodes you know the, we can hold a tidy concept for a little while but then it becomes an idol and an obstacle so whether we phrase it in Christian or Buddhist or whatever terms or secular humanist the concept only has so much mileage but what I hear from 12-steppers is you know like right now just take the kind of juiciest term that you can get into or concept or symbol and work with that and then let it deepen so my understanding is higher power is supposed to be open and and one of the problems is when it gets squashed into a particular group or individual's conception and in Christianity that's idolatry it's, it's not really faith uh, I like where the discussion is going and 
I think I'm not enlightening that. A lot of people have started Christianity and had a very tight uh, view of what was right and wrong, and then started to see my heroes who were priests and members of the faith fall. Enlightenment will strike and life becomes easy. Everything. So I think we all carry that, but but what you're talking about is faith. The capacity to sit with that struggle, that conflict. There's faith in that. And hopefully as time goes on, it's a faith that deepens and is accompanied with in understanding and wisdom, forgiveness and um, compassion, and then seeing seeing the what's going on in that struggle and finding the pieces you can gradually let go of. So there's there's faith and there's something in that you trust, and that's higher power because it's, it's not ego. Is that it? Yeah. Yes, and then over here. Two questions. Uh, number one, how would you define yourself? And two, is there such a thing as healthy self? Because in terms of like other addictions, in terms of like eating and sex and even drinking, there is some that can be healthy Right. The second question is kind of relative, and so I would say yes, relatively healthy. Um, how am I defining self? 
um, various ways. Self philosophically or linguistically in Buddhist tradition is the illusion or belief that there is some something in us that lasts. It doesn't have to be eternal, but it, it, it lasts. Therefore, it's not impermanent. That has control or agency and is individual or you could say unique, i.e. not separate or separate. And if we examine these, that when we hold to something as me, there's some assumption going on, it may not be conscious of what I am left. You know, it was born, it went to school, and it's projected into the future. A lot of self is a vehicle for transversing time. Without time, there's no self. Okay, so one is it lasts. There's that assumption. Some element of control, agency, the ability to get what you want, and independence. And none of these hold up on investigation. So it's not quite a definition, it's more of a description of key characteristics. Because if Buddhism's right, there's nothing that is the self. They're just constructs that fit the word self, ego, me, and so on. But I, I think self is also a sense, maybe it's an evolved sense, that if something's happening, somebody is doing it. Somebody is experiencing it. So actors and victims recipient, so that way of interpreting experience as, the way I put it, as lumpy. Instead of experiencing life as constantly shifting relationship, there are these discrete pieces. You know, it's kind of the billiard ball understanding of the universe that there are these discrete pieces interacting. But if you read Nagarjuna, Nagarjuna, anyway, if you dig into, do you know who Nagarjuna is? Um, he blows that apart without positing something, which is kind of what Buddhism's about, not, not forming a basis to create self out of. So that's maybe enough on definition. Yeah, relatively there's healthier selves. 
like if self manifests around kindness, that's healthier than manifesting around stinginess or greediness. But I think from a Buddhist angle, what we want to emphasize in that is not the self part, but the healthy part. Because the, the strong tendency to conceive of it as I'm healthy. And some people need that for a while. But, but I think it's more therapeutic to focus not on I'm healthy, but what's healthy. And then focus on nurturing what's healthy. Sharing, kindness, um, forgiveness, humility, things like that. But the language of a lot of psychology and a lot of um, social services uses the language itself and it's embedded in English and maybe most languages. So if we speak using that language, sure, we speak of healthy self. But you won't be able to isolate it or find it. It's just a kind of, you know, you're kind of pointing at it like this, but you can't pinpoint it. emphasis on equanimity, non-judgment. The tricky part is it's kind of like the elephant in the room. As soon as you think of not judging, and then I've heard people being very judgmental about judgment in advocating non-judgment. So it's a tricky thing. So sometimes if we just kind of catch I, 
you know, in Buddhism we talk about hot, you know, fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. If you see judgment and recognize it as fire, poison, dart, or whatever, those are traditional metaphors. But just the kind of, if you really see it as hot, drop it, and you drop it, then you don't get caught in this, I should be, I shouldn't be judging, which is a judgment. And so if you can just drop it, otherwise a more active approach would be something like cultivate forgiveness. So to get out of judging mind, forgive. Forgive yourself. If you can't forgive yourself, find somebody to forgive. And then when you get some forgiveness momentum going, bring it to yourself or your dad or whoever. So sometimes we're just not able to do that more delicate, just drop it. So we may need something more active. And you, part of being an experienced meditator is you find your tools. Like forgiveness is real strong for me. Somebody else might emphasize compassion. about is um, a need to go deeper into how you share. That, I'm just kind of guessing, but that 
it seems to me after a certain period of time, the usual sharing can almost get ritualistic and have still some value for the group and maybe oneself. But maybe there's some things that aren't coming out that you're ready to explore. Is that in the ballpark? So are you able to share that at your meetings? Um, I mean, I do work with, you know, really, you know, things like not preparing and, you know, not trying to, to state, you know, decide what I'm going to say and really work with that as a practice, sharing, you know, that as a practice. But mm -hmm. um, there is something that feels very uh, egotistical about it. like it's probably different but maybe not totally I've had issues around saying I'm a teacher I've taught for years I have strong pedantic tendencies <laughs> but especially in terms of Dhamma I've been very reluctant to accept that I'm a teacher recently I'm more comfortable with it it's a convention that okay yeah, I teach, I'm a teacher. So in that case, I've kind of complicated it. And it's partly I don't want to get on in a teacher trip. But it's really not about the word, it's about the behaviors. So, but that that's led me to kind of be overly nuanced around saying I'm a teacher. So I'm wondering to what extent it's just, you know, I, I think in any spiritual practice as we go, labels are seen to be more and more tenuous. They're, they're crude. But yet we need them to communicate. So I think Part of it, like in Mahayana Buddhism, there's the doctrine of two truths, the relative and the what's sometimes called the ultimate. And so, for example, emptiness or not-self would be an example of ultimate truth. But then some people get really confused trying to live and talk as if I'm not a self. So, Real practice is to comfortably navigate relative truth, keeping an eye on deeper truth. So I've, I've gotten caught up in the linguistic stuff around, around that. So that's one piece. And I was thinking of something else, but I think I forgot while you were, while you were talking. Um, oh, sorry. Yep. In, in what Jonathan just spoke about, um, 
sitting with pain, or let's say that they came from a trauma. I find that in what was said earlier about community, I have um, more self-acceptance when I go to community and I'm able to talk more about the deeper self that's going on within me. And that then allows me to be more self-accepting of myself. And there in <coughs> and in that more self-accepting of others as well. Uh, so I, I, I find that uh, it makes a great deal of sense for me to be a part of the community. The community helps me open up more. And as long as I feel the acceptance of that community, the more open I will be, the more unlikely I will be to be I fully agree. <laughs> And um, another piece for me that's along those lines is also when I can talk about stuff, if it's just going on inside me, it's a lot easier to distort it, but to try to put it into words with people where there's a commitment to honesty. Maybe we're never totally honest, but at least we're working on it. And there's a kind of letting go and a faithfulness in that as well. That is part of what I think you're saying is. I've always liked that we've got back to the concept of the map. The map has to keep changing. And Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.